Hebrews 7. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being by interpretation king of righteousness, and after that also king of Salem. If you've ever been around Jewish people and they say shalom, same thing, Salem, shalom, which is king of peace. Without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth a priest continually. Now consider how great this man was, unto whom even the patriarch Abraham gave the tenth of the spoils. My subject is simply going to be called first, King of Righteousness. First, King of Righteousness. God bless you. You may be seated. There is a lot of controversy that swirls about this man, Melchizedek. A lot of people have absolutely no idea who this guy is. Um, I do not claim to be an authority, but I do have some very definite opinions about him. Um, Some people think he's a theophany. A theophany is a brief appearance of God. I've always found that approach flawed for several reasons. Uh, (laughs) Bible said, this is my only begotten son. Only sounds a lot to me like once. So I don't think God showed up before Bethlehem in flesh. And uh, I could get very technical about that, but I have a lot of ground to cover. Bible said in um, Ephesians 4 and 4, there's one spirit. One. There's not a spirit of the Father separate from the Holy Spirit, separate from the Spirit of the Son. Ephesians 4 and 4 said there's one spirit. John 4 and 24 said God is that one spirit. 2 Corinthians 3 says now the Lord is that same spirit. Not another spirit, same spirit. So whether you call that spirit God or Lord or Father, Holy, it's just one spirit. But in Acts chapter 9, when Saul was laying with his backside in the middle of the road, he said, who art thou, Lord? The answer was, I'm Jesus. See, I'm a father and I'm a son and I'm a grandfather. It doesn't make me three people just because I hold three different positions. Jesus Christ is not Jehovah Jr. He is not the second person in a fictitious trio of beings. God is spirit. And according to the Bible, there's only one legal liquid that can deal with sin, and that's blood. And so if God remains spirit, he can't help anybody. He can't redeem anybody. But the Bible said in 2 Corinthians 5, 19, to wit, God was in Christ. 
1 Timothy 3 and 16 says, Great is the mystery of God in us. God was manifest in the flesh. So when you say Father, that's spirit. But when you say Son, that's flesh. That's why you can say the Father dwelt in the Son. Because the Son said that. Jesus said, I can't do anything by myself. It's the Father that dwells in me that does the works. And when you understand that and understand that God took on flesh, then that's the revelation of who Jesus is. And uh, there's another fly in the ointment. It says in 7 and 4, now consider how great this man was. I don't believe he was God in flesh. I believe he was a man. And uh, I've uh, told the story several times of my grandmother. She used to make rugs out of rags. And when they were not looking, I would untie one of the rugs and I would pull on it. And it would pucker on the other side of the room. And that's what happens in the Bible. There are Genesis is a box of seeds. They're not developed. They're, they're first mentioned. They're, 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 so when you pull on something in Genesis, it puckers over here in Revelation. Because these themes are woven all the way through the word of the Lord. They're introduced to us in the book of Genesis, but they find fruition as you go from the front of it to the back. There's a popular teaching that's gained a lot of momentum in what I guess you would call evangelical Christianity that really all we're responsible today is for the words of Jesus. <laughs> I saw a Bible, I think a week ago, the whole Bible was red. All the letters were in red. It was like, yeah, yeah, that makes sense to me. Because the Bible said we're built upon the foundation of the apostles, which is New Testament, and the prophets, which is Old Testament. Watch. Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone. Do you get it? The cornerstone's laid first. Jesus comes before all of that. And says all scripture, all scripture, not just the New Testament, all scripture is given by the inspiration of God. And it says it's profitable for doctrine. Doctrine's what's right. And for reproof, which is what's not right. And then it says for correction, which is how to get right. And then it says instruction, which is how to stay right. So the whole book, the whole book. And that's why you have to be a student of the whole thing. And um, I, 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 I look at this and... Um, um, I want to look at this mysterious guy, Melchizedek. There's not a lot of Bible about him. We, we've only got him in three places in the Bible. And um, everything that he did is, is recorded in three verses in the book of Genesis chapter 14. I'll read them to you. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine and he was the priest of the most high God. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham of the most high God, possessor of heaven and earth. And he blessed and blessed be the most high God, which has delivered thy enemies into thy hand. And he, being Abraham, 
gave tithe of everything that he had to this priest by the name of Melchizedek. And that's it. That's it. You've got Abraham's fascinating story. What He's got a nephew by the name of Lot. Lot and his family. Very sad. I think it's, uh, it's probably like 13 and 12 of Genesis. It says, and Lot pitched his tent towards Sodom. He wasn't in Sodom. He was just looking at it. Every, every day he got up and opened up his tent, there's Sodom. One chapter later, is it 13 and 12? Oh, I'm good, man. One chapter later, 14 and 12, this is what it says. He's living in Sodom now. He's not on the outside looking at it. He's in it. He's, he's living in the city. Five chapters later, in 19 of Genesis, it says, And Lot sat at the gate of Sodom. Now these are walled cities, and they've got several doors, gates around the city. So these gates are natural places of ingress and egress. So when you had a piece of real estate around a gate, the Bible said Matthew set at the receipt of custom by the gate. So when it says Lot is sitting at the gate, this is not just, when I was a kid, we had these old men, they called them the spit and whittles. And uh, they were old, broken, worn out coal miners. And they all gathered down at Manuel Nicholas's store and they'd lean against the rail. All of them were limping. They had battered and broken their bodies in the coal mine. My grandpa was one of those guys. They, they, they knew what time the mailman came. Mailman came at 8 o'clock every morning. But they were there at 7. And uh, they, most of them chewed tobacco. And almost all of them had pen knives. I called them the spit and whittles. Because they'd lean against that rail on that old porch... And they'd spit that tobacco juice and they'd be whittling with their knives. And uh, <laughs> it was just uh, pretty boring, really. They knew what time he was coming, but they were there. And uh, you get a little insight. Here's Lot, he's looking at Sodom. He's living in Sodom. Now he's sitting at the gate. They're not just whittling and spitting juice. This is a very unique, powerful piece of real estate. So he's involved in this city. So they've got these four kings that come together and they combine their armies. And these four combined armies turn into one large army and they start pillaging one city after another. And they made the bad mistake of capturing Sodom. With it, the people that were there, they were there to turn them into slaves. You get a little insight into how great Abraham was. Because Abraham's got an army of his own. And his army takes on four combined armies and wins, and wins huge. So when the battle's over, he's got all this stuff that these armies have collected as they're pillaging one city after another. And he tells the people of Sodom, 
Whatever's there that's yours. You, you know, if that's your fridge, fine. Is that your doghouse? Is that your 12 gauge? Is that your microwave? Fine. You take that. Everything else is mine. So in Genesis 14, he's wealthy before this, but now he is fabulously wealthy. And he's returning from what is known as the slaughter of the kings. And he meets this very unique character by the name of Melchizedek. And it says that Melchizedek brought bread and wine with Abraham. It said he blessed Abraham. And then it says Abraham gave a tenth of all the spoils that he had got from that victory and returned his tithe. He gave a tenth to this priest by the name of Melchizedek. An entire life is summed up in three verses. He brought forth bread and wine. He blessed Abraham. Abraham tithed to this man. It's silent for 750 years until we come to Psalms 110 which is known as a messianic psalm. It is a prophecy about Messiah coming to the world. The Lord hath sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so it's quiet for another 400 years until that's much longer than that. It's, uh, you've got Genesis 14. That's 400 years before the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20. What I, what I want you to understand is that when Abraham meets this priest, this is, what, this is early in the Bible. This is early in the first chapters of Genesis. Before religion is, it's really in its infancy and yet this guy is known as the priest of the Most High God. And in a world where very few people knew much of anything about the true God, this guy is a priest of the Most High God. You've got David showing up and gives this one little verse in Psalms 110. And... Uh, he told us the Messiah would get his authority from somewhere else. Because if you know your Bible, in the Old Testament, the priesthood came from Levi. But Jesus didn't come from the Levi. Jesus came from the tribe of Judah. And specifically, it says, you are going to be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, you've got to go another thousand years into the book of Hebrews. And the writer of the Hebrews says, wait a minute, we need to take a long, hard look at this guy, Melchizedek. First being, by interpretation, king of righteousness, and then king of peace. Bible said in Isaiah 9 and 6, unto us a child is born, 
Unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And you will call his name, whose name? The son's name. You will call his name Wonderful. I got no problem calling Jesus Wonderful. Counselor. I thought for years that meant advisor, but when you really study the word, it basically means your defense attorney. He's your lawyer. One scripture says, we have an advocate. And the translation is defense attorney because the enemy is the prosecution. He's the one that's gonna try and put us away, but we have an advocate. We have a barrister. We have a counselor. The mighty God, the everlasting Father, watch this, the Prince of Peace. Watch the next verse. And of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. Isaiah, giving a prophecy about Jesus Christ, refers to him as the Prince of Peace. But long before Isaiah ever showed up, Melchizedek is not introduced to us as a prince, but he's introduced to us as a king. A prince is not a king. Prince Charles just became King Charles recently in England because the queen died. And this fascinates me because a prince is just a king in waiting. Somebody's gonna have to abdicate or somebody's gonna have to die in order for the throne to be empty, in order for that person to graduate from prince to king. And that's what you gotta remember because the Bible said, consider how great this man was. That even Abraham, when you talk about Abraham, Abraham is massive. Christianity, we believe we're sons of Abraham. Jews believe they're sons of Abraham. Muslims believe they're sons of Abraham. He is a big deal when it comes to what I guess you would call religion on the worldwide stage. But it says, consider how great this guy is that Abraham tithes to him. Abraham gives him a tenth of what he has. The man that you hold in the highest regard, the guy that turned into a hitchhiker when he was 70 years old looking for a city which hath foundations, whose builder made Abraham the great. Now let's consider how great this guy was that Abraham paid tithes to. It's not my message, but there are people that believe tithing started with the law of Moses and therefore ended at the cross. That's not true. Abraham tithed hundreds of years before the law ever showed up. And if you remember the story of Jacob with the ladder, what one translation called the stairs, angels going up. And he said, if God will be with me and if he will keep me in the way that I go and give me raiment to put on and food to eat and bring me back to my father's house in peace, he said, then he'll be my God and I will tithe unto him. 
This is a long time before the law. Tithing is a law of life. I never was a money preacher. I was always very uncomfortable preaching about money. But the older I get, I realize I'm doing people a disservice if I don't teach you about money. Because God keeps good books. And that's what the tithe, the tenth is all about because the Bible is full of stories about the first fruits. So when you get a hundred bucks, ten of that isn't yours. Ten of that is his. You don't pay all of your bills and then if you've got ten bucks left, you give it to the Lord. You do your tithing first. You give the Lord first fruits. Okay? And this is the promise. Bible said, prove me. Prove me. And see if I won't pour you a blessing that you can't contain it. Just prove me. Because this is what he said. If you do the tithe, I'll make the remainder like you gave it all to me. Because here's the dirty little secret that nobody will tell you. You're going to spend the money one way or another. I was talking to someone recently who used to, but no longer tithes. They do not live in this city. They live quite a distance. But telling us how they needed to spend extra money on their house and the washing machine that they just bought just broke down and the vehicle that they just bought, all the money they had to spend on it. The Bible's very clear. If you honor the Lord, the washing machine won't wear out like it would have. The car won't break down. That's the promise. He said, prove me, prove me. I've just seen this in my life again. Tithing predates the law. If it didn't start with the law of Moses, it doesn't end with the law of Moses. And, and, and if, you, if you know your Bible, there is a very defined wall between a king and a priest. Saul, for instance. Saul, it's in, uh, uh, this is 1 Samuel 13. And Samuel said unto Saul, thou hast done foolishly. Thou hast not kept the commandment of the Lord thy God, which he commanded thee, for now would the Lord have established thy kingdom upon Israel forever. But now thy kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought him a man after his own heart. And the Lord hath commanded him to be captain over his people, because thou hast not kept that which the Lord commanded thee. If you know your Bible, Saul got anxious And before Samuel showed up, Saul offered sacrifice. He's a king. You're not supposed to be a priest. He offers sacrifices. When Samuel shows up, he said, let me tell you something, buddy. If you wouldn't have done this, God would have established your kingdom forever. But because of what you just did, God sent me on a chase. I just came back from Jesse's house and I found a kid who has a heart after the Lord. Matter of fact, just two chapters later, Samuel tore the garment of Saul and he said, just as I've torn your coat apart, God has ripped the kingdom away from you and there will not be one person left of the household of Saul to sit on the throne. And if you know your Bible, when David became king, all of Saul's sons had been slaughtered on crosses. But when David became king, the first question he asked was, is there anybody left from the house of Saul? And they said, you know what? There's one handicapped grandson 
by the name of Mephibosheth. And David took that limping grandson and the Bible said he sat at the king's table for the rest of his life, which is a great story because the Bible said his nanny dropped him when he was little. When she was running, they were afraid. And obviously his legs were broken and twisted. They never did set them well. But when you're sitting at the king's table, all you can see is from here up. You don't see them twisted legs. Because the king, when the king invites you to sit at his table, he'll cover your past. He'll cover your problems. But you read your Bible. Mephibosheth never was married. He never had a family of his own. And the prophecy of Samuel came true. The dynasty, the family of Saul disappeared. There's another story about a guy named Uzziah. Uzziah was an amazing critter when you read him. He's 16 years old when he became king. Bible said he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord. But then I found this verse in 2 Chronicles 26 and 16. But when he was strong, his heart was lifted up to his destruction for he transgressed against the Lord and went into the temple to burn incense upon the altar. That's the job of the priest, not the king. As he's trying to burn incense on the altar in the temple, 80 priests came out and rebuked him and said, you're not allowed to do this. I I, I saw something on YouTube last week. It was one video after another. Police officers carry these video recorders on them, their person now. One politician after another telling these police, drunk as a skunk. You have any idea who I am? You have any idea what numbers I got in my phone right now? These 80 priests came in and they confronted Uzziah and he said, do you have any idea who I am? And he went to raise his hand to strike them. And the Bible said, God put leprosy on his head. There's all kinds of leprosy in the Bible, but leprosy on the forehead, that's bad stuff. The Bible said he lived the rest of his life without. He was never able to go to church again. He never went into the palace again. He lived a life of shame and judgment. Why? Because he dared cross the line between a king and a priest. Because that was only reserved for one person. There was just one that was supposed to be the king and the priest. And when Saul did it, he was judged. When Uzziah did it, he was judged. And listen to what Jesus or what, 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 what John said in, in John 8 and 56. And your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and was glad. When did he see it? I'll tell you something that I think of. Here's Abraham and his boy going up one side of the mountain. The boy said, Daddy, we got a knife. We got the wood. We got the fire. Where's the sacrifice? Listen to what Abraham told Isaac. The Lord will provide himself a sacrifice. And as Abraham and Isaac are going up by faith one side of the hill, God is making sure that a ram is catching his horns in the briar on the other side of the mountain. And there's a very fine line here between faith and first degree murder. 
because Abraham literally believed. You read the book of Hebrews. Abraham literally believed. You, you, you study Leviticus. It talks about the burnt offering. Let me tell you about a burnt offering. You, we're, there's no sedative here, okay? But we're not talking about, okay, son, let me, let me just put this needle in your arm and put you to sleep for a while. No. According to Leviticus, when you dealt with a burnt offering, Leviticus chapter one, you had to, you had to cut that offering in pieces. You had to take all the organs out of that body. If there was any fat clinging to the kidneys or anything, you would scrape that fat off. And then you would precisely put these severed pieces on the altar. Could you do that to your boy? Could you do that to your child? This is what the Bible says. Abraham understood that not only did God make man from the dust of the earth, but literally believed he could burn his boy up as a burnt offering and God could take the dust of that offering and give him his boy back. And he got it in tight because as that boy's bound on that altar and daddy's about to shove that knife in his throat, the Bible said the angel of the Lord stayed his hand. He said, look over here. And as he looked, there's a ram caught in the briars. What are you talking about? He's talking about there was a sacrifice that took the place of that boy. Abraham saw his day and I promise you he rejoiced that God provided himself for a sacrifice to take the place of his boy. And that's what happened to you and me. Jesus Christ took our place. All right. He that knew no sin was made sin for us. He provided himself. I'll tell you another thing. In the book of Genesis 14, it said that Melchizedek brought bread and wine. If I came out here today and I put a table down in front of you and I brought out pieces of unleavened bread and cups of fruit of the vine, everybody would know, guess we're having communion today. Guess we're having communion today. We know. <laughs> we know what communion's about. It's, it, it, it's just... It's the same revelation. When Melchizedek shared the wine and bread with Abraham, they're sharing the same insight forward that we now have backwards. When we eat the bread and take the cup, that bread represents a sinless life, unleavened. The Bible said, he knew no sin, but was made sin for us. The Bible said he was tempted in all points like as we are. But the difference is he didn't give in to the temptation. He didn't sin. <laughs> and so when we eat that bread, that undefiled bread, <laughs> when the Lord lived here. He lived as one who was tempted and yet he had victory over sin. He wasn't just sinless. He was tempted and rose above the temptation because he loved you and me so much that he knew I've got to go to the cross as a spotless lamb. Because if Jesus had gone to the cross with sin, he would have been just another martyr. 
because thousands of people died on the cross at the hands of the Roman. And there would have been no difference between Jesus Christ and all of those others except for this. This is a sinless sacrifice. So this is not, this is not a martyr. Listen, listen with Revelation in 1 Samuel 15 and 22. And Samuel said, Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. Oh man, is that, a, that, that, when I read that, I just, see, here's, here's what the deal is. God, I, I, I don't have time to talk to you about the Amalekites, but, uh, you know, it looks like, it looks like, uh, Jacob and Esau mended their fence. The Bible said he fell on his brother's neck. He buried the hatchet, but he buried it in his brother's hat. He buried it in his brother's back. Because if you know your Bible, it said Esau had a boy named Eliphaz. And Eliphaz had a boy named Amalek. And Amalek is the father of the Amalekites. So when Israel is in the bondage of Egypt and they are miraculously delivered, probably Exodus 17 when they come out of Egypt and they cross the, ri the river, this is what it says. Then came Amalek. Their first, boy, does this sound familiar. Their first fight after they got delivered from the bondage of the world they came from was with their own family, was with their own cousins, with their own relatives. I've seen people find God and the first obstacle they had in their walk with God was their well-meaning, well-intentioned family who was trying to convince him, you don't want to do that. I remember a girl that came to this church years ago and the first time she came, she, she, she was easy on the eyes and she didn't have a lot of clothes on. And she liked a boy in this church. And, 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 and she, she, came, she came to see the boy, but God filled her with the Holy Ghost. And the very next service she came, she had a mini skirt on, but she had a blouse and on a tube top like before. <laughs> After a while... You know, God started working on her. She bought her first dress. And then she started giving to the church. Her dad was furious. Her dad was out of his mind with rage because his daughter was in this cult. His daughter was in this crazy thing called Pentecost. And I, 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 I never did confront her father, but I wanted to so desperately. It was like before she came to church, these boys that show up on your porch at two in the morning looking like they crawled out of a garbage can and your girl would go and you'd say, have a nice time, sweetheart. And you never gave it a moment's note, but all of a sudden she starts wearing modest clothing and she starts coming to church and she's not getting drunk and she's not being naked and she's not doing stupid stuff and she's, she's trying to, to live modest. You're worried about her. You should have worried about her when she was naked. You should have worried about her when you let her with your blessing go run with all them heathens. But now you're worried about her because <laughs> she's going to church. Bible said when they took the ark in front of Dagon, they came back the next day and the Bible said Dagon was on his face. They put Dagon back on the, on the pedestal. When they came back the next day, it said hey, Dagon was broken in pieces. I'm telling you, there's going to, I can't tell you how many times in pastoring through the years, someone would get the Holy Ghost, someone be filled with the Spirit, somebody be baptized in the name of the Lord, and they're so excited about it, and all of a sudden, some well-intentioned dingbat comes into their life and says, man, you don't want to do that. 
And they're trying to put that old God back on the pedestal in their life. But when the ark is it, when the power of God is in your life, don't ever underestimate the power of God can do in a heathen temple. Always be some well-intentioned person trying to set your old life up back on the pedestal. Don't take the bait. Don't take the bait. And, 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 when, and, and this, this is so amazing because, you know, it, it, you've got the Amalekites and, 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 and the first fight they had when they came out of Egypt was with their own family, Amalek. Years later, when Saul became king, the Lord told Saul, don't ever forget what Amalek did to you, by the way. And I want you to destroy them from Havilah to Shur, which is 1,600 square miles. And so all of a sudden, Saul's out there. And he did a lot of work, a lot of work. One of the great messages I heard in my life was preached by an old elder by the name of George Glass Sr. And he preached a message called incomplete obedience. He said, not disobedience, incomplete obedience. Because Saul had destroyed the Amalekites from Havilah to Shur. And all of a sudden, God spoke to the prophet and said, you get down there and you, you, confront, that, you confront that king. And they go down there and, and this is what happens. Saul ran to Samuel and he said, blessed be thou of the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. In other words, I did exactly what you told me to do. And Samuel said, really? If you did what I asked you to do, then why do I keep hearing these sheep? And why do I keep hearing these cows? And, and Saul said, oh man, it's better than that. We got the king down here in a bamboo cage. And all of a sudden, the Bible said, when Agag the king saw the prophet coming, it said he straightened himself. Other translations, you know, tucked his shirt in his breeches, you know, slicked back his hair. The preacher's coming. Everything's going to be fine. Samuel stands in front of that cage and looks at Saul and said, you got a sword? Give me a sword. And when they let that king out, it's one of the most gory verses in the Bible. It said Samuel cut him up into pieces. He hewed him in pieces before the Lord. And he, he grabbed Saul's garment and ripped him and said, God's done with you. It wasn't what he did that was disobedient. It was incomplete obedience. He'd already done a lot of great stuff, but he didn't do it. See, the Bible said in the, at, the, at the judgment, there'll be people say, didn't, didn't we do this in your name? Didn't we do that? I don't know anybody that does more in Jesus name than Pentecostal people. And there's going to be some shocked Pentecostal people at the throne of judgment one day when they're going to say, I did this in your name. I did that. And he said, depart from me, worker of iniquity. I don't even know who you are because the Bible said this man knew his wife and she had a child and this man knew his wife. And when it says depart from me, I never knew you. It means you and I never got intimate enough to where we produced offspring. We were never, we were never together enough that we, that there was a harvest, that you affected another's life, that someone else wasn't born because of the relationship that you and I have with one another. And it's a powerful thing because when Samuel looks at Saul, he says, listen to me, dummy. He said, don't you, I don't care what kind of sacrifice you've got. Obedience is better than sacrifice. The Bible says, if you come to the altar with your gift and you got art with your brother, it said you leave your gift at the altar and you go back and get right with your brother 
and then come back and give your gift. Because people say, man, you don't understand. I can't tell you how many musicians have gone through this church. Uh, when we first came here, there was very, 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 very little. And we've gone through dozens of them through the years. And it, it's just, you know, <laughs> I, 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 you know, you, but you don't understand, Brother Huffman, I'm talented. You don't understand, Brother Huffman, I got a really good job. I'm going to put some serious tithing into this place. I'm going to put some money in the pot. Let me explain something to you. If you come to an altar, I don't care how much money you have. I don't care how talented you, I don't care how educated you are. If you've got aught with your brother, this is what God says. Before you offer a sacrifice, you need to be obedient to my word. You need to get your right, your life right first. Because obedience is better than any sacrifice you could ever make. Understand that. That's a powerful, powerful principle because this is what the Bible says. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death. Here's 2 Corinthians 10. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations, and everything that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringeth into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Most people miss it, but here's the, here's the secret. It was the obedience of Jesus Christ that gives us power. Power over sin is possible because he was obedient. Power over sickness is possible because he was obedient. You have power over the rebel Satan and all his works because the Lord was obedient. It wasn't the cross only. It was the life obedience that he lived before the cross. It was the obedience before the sacrifice that gives this thing such power. And so when you realize what kind of life do you, listen, listen to this, I am come that you might have life and life more abundantly. What kind of life do you think he's talking about? What, I'm convinced it's a life of obedience. Listen to what it says. In him was life and the life was the light of men. I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus is saying, I live the life that you were supposed to live, but you couldn't because of sin. And now when you take my life into you, you can live the life you always wanted to, but never could because you never had me. But now that you've got me, you can live a life of obedience, just like I lived the life of obedience because you're in Christ. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death for what the law could not do in that it was weak in the flesh. God came in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. Praise God. When that man offered bread and wine, ladies and gentlemen, the bread's unleavened. The bread is unleavened. That wine 
Take and eat, this is my body. Take and drink, this is my blood. Because the life is what it is. Made the blood what it is. This is why Moses said, I don't want you eating the blood of an animal. I was in Louisiana and they said, would you like some blood sausage? No, no. I know I'm not living under Old Testament dietary laws. It just sounded horrible to me. (laughs) Would you like some blood sausage? Read the Bible. Why did Moses say, don't eat the blood of the animal? Because 17 and 11 of Leviticus says, life of that animal is in the blood. And if you eat that animal and that blood that's in it, you are ingesting all that it was. Do you have any idea what animals eat? American eagle. I went fishing, men in the church. I'm talking in the boondocks. We drive 12, we leave two in the morning, drive 12 hours. Get our stuff unpacked, put it in a boat and drive for another hour, hour and a half. We are, we don't see people. We see bears, we see moose, catch fish, lots of skeetas, but uh, we don't see people. First day we're there, catch fish. Don't gut the fish where you live. Gut the fish, take the innards in a boat 300 yards to a rock. Lay all them gooey things on that rock. Honest to goodness, before them guys get back to the cabin, there's an eagle sitting in there burying his head in all that goo. I'm watching with binoculars. It's like, that's the symbol of America. (laughs) Yeah, probably really is. Just burying ourselves in a bunch of goo. And it's like... I thought eagles were finicky eaters. When that animal ate something impure and you ingest the blood of that animal, you are now becoming an accomplice in their act. So when you take the blood of an animal into your being, you are taking all that the animal was in its life. So when you take the blood of Jesus into you. You are taking all that he was during his life. I mean, ladies and gentlemen, it can't get any clearer than this. Leviticus 17, 11 says life of the flesh is in the blood. But I taught you three hours ago, Genesis is a box of seeds. And as you go through the Bible, the truth expands. So you come to John 20 and verse 31. These things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ and that believing you might have life, not through his blood, but through his name, because that's the revelation. You see, Jesus died 2,000 years ago. How are we going to see? There's only one legal liquid that can deal with sin, and that's blood. But Jesus died 2,000 years ago. How do we access the blood of Jesus today? The Bible said in John 20 and 31, it says that the life is in the name. And according to Leviticus, see if you don't, if you, if you've got the name, (laughs) 
you've got life. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from the sin. I can just go on and on and on. There's all kinds of scriptures about that. If you've got the name, you've got life. If you've got life based on Leviticus 17:11, you've got li- you've got blood. If you've got blood based on Hebrews 9, or is it Hebrews 9 and 22? You, 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 you've got remission. If you've got remission, God got Alzheimer's. You're a new creation. You're not who you used to be. You with me? But if you don't have the name, you can't have life. If you don't have life, you don't have blood. If you don't have blood, there's no remission. If there's no remission, you just got whacked. Now tell me Jesus' name baptism isn't important. Now tell me it doesn't matter. Now try and explain to me, oh, you just do whatever you want. The blood is in the name. And when you're baptized, don't you get it? That's why I said, don't eat that blood. Why? Because everything them animals did while they were alive is in that blood. So when we get entering, there is therefore no condemnation to them which are in Christ. When you enter 80 times in the New Testament, in Christ, they're in Christ. In, I see, see, there's my mother right there. She got me on this planet, but she couldn't get me off of it. You with me? And what I got to understand is there's a lot of difference between, between Esther Gertrude and the church, the mother of us all. What I want you to understand is that when you, I had no choice in the matter when daddy and mother became sweethearts and I was the product of that nine months later. I had no choice about when I was going to enter this earth, but I did have a choice about whether I'm going to leave it. I did have a choice about how I was going to live my life. You have nothing to say about the first time you were born. You got everything to say about the second time you were born. And everything that that animal ate and everything that it stuck its gooey nose in while it was alive is in that blood. And I'm telling you, just as all that gunk and goo and horrible stuff was in the blood of an animal, everything, everything that Jesus was and everything that he wasn't is in his blood. And when you're baptized in his name, the blood of Jesus Christ is applied to your life. And now everything that he was while he was alive is in us. Life more abundantly. In him was I am the resurrection and the life. You can live the life that you always wanted to but never could because you never had access to the life of Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus said, take it. Eat it. It's my body. I didn't sin. This is unleavened bread. Go ahead and drink this. It's my blood. You are taking what I have during my life here on earth into your life. He was pure. Now you and I can be pure. He was holy. Now you and I can be holy. Say, oh, that's not possible. Listen to this first. Be holy because I'm holy. That's not a suggestion, okay? He was tempted in all points. You ever been bitter? I have. I have. I had to fire somebody years ago, and it was horrible. It was just horrible. And they ended up suing the church. And, and I had to go to Lansing, and it was, it was terrible. And all of a sudden, a man on that committee began to talk to me, and he said, Pastor Hoffman, this is not a pay issue. This is a severance issue. When was the last day this person was in the church? I said, in March. He said, I've got canceled checks here through September. I said, yes, sir. We paid them for six months after they left. He said, you did what? He said, can I come work for you? 
He said, let me tell you the way it works around here, Pastor Hoffman. When they let you go on Friday, they take you to the door. You take the keys off the ring and you're gone. Adios. Nobody pays anybody for six months after they leave. And he said, are you in the house, sir? And he said, I didn't think so. He said, Pastor Hoffman, I'm sorry for all the sleepless nights you've had. You go home. I'll take care of this. So probably four or five months later, my wife said, what's wrong with you? And I said, I don't want to have an unforgiving spirit. And she said, oh, you're talking about that person that you had to let go. And I said, yeah. She said, you forgave him. And I said, how do you know that I forgave him? She said, well, before when somebody mentioned their name, you went out of your mind. (laughs) She said, before when anybody even hinted at that person, you lost it. She said, not anymore. She said, Harold, didn't anybody ever teach you the difference between forgiveness and trust? And I said, nope. And my sweetheart taught me one of the greatest lessons I've ever had in my life. She said, Harold, forgiveness is based on yesterday. Trust is based on tomorrow. You have forgiven that man, but you don't trust him because he hasn't changed the way he lived. He was a heathen. He's still a heathen. But that's not your problem. You forgave him but you don't trust them. Don't misinterpret trust for forgiveness. And it freed me. But I've been angry. You ever been jealous? I've been jealous. You ever want something that wasn't yours? Huh? You ever done it? Did you ever think anything really, really bad? Am I the only guy in this place willing to admit that I've thought some really, really, really bad stuff? They sell a shirt in this church. I said it. I'm a Christian about 80% of the time. Jesus comes when I'm in traffic. I don't know. <laughs> Stan Aaron. Stan Aaron's here. When he first came to church, he heard me say that. I said, all these other preachers want a jet. I want a helicopter. I want to fly over this, this traffic in Detroit. Stan came to me and said, you're really serious? You want a helicopter? So me, I said, why? You can get me one? He said, uh, I work for Sikorsky Helicopters, Pastor Hoffman. Yes, sir. I can get you a helicopter. <laughs> I said, how much? He said, ah, 1.5. I said, well, that doesn't include the hangar. No, doesn't include the hangar. Doesn't include the pilot. Doesn't include the insurance. Doesn't include the maintenance. It's a lot of, I said, you know what? So old brother Neto, not old uh, brother Neto, not old brother Neto, but I love it. Honorato, what a name. I call him ornery, but it really means honor. So we have an honorable elder here. I, it, 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 it's at, at the house. He brought me a little white helicopter, a plastic helicopter. <laughs> there you go, Brother Hoffman. You can help. But I'll tell you what, man. You ever been angry in traffic? Did you ever cuss in your brain? Oh, I have. I've thought some really bad. Am I the only one willing to admit that? Sorry, but I, I just, I, I got feet of clay, man. I just, but, 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 but what I want you to understand something he was tempted in all points, just like I was, but he, he didn't do it. Yet without sin. And, it, and, it, and, it, and what's so powerful is in Christ is only possible through baptism in his name. See, Moses stretched out a tree over the river, the waters of Egypt. I was in India years ago and they got the Ganges River. They call it the mother of their country. 
I go down to the mother of their country. Here's all these people down there taking a bath. Naked as the day they were born, taking a bath in the river. They're dumping the ashes of the cremated people in that river. There's more debris and there's more garbage than you. I saw people just drinking the water of that Ganges. And I'm going, oh. And if you study Egypt, they believe the Nile River was the mother of everything. But I'm telling you, I've been, I spent a lot of my early years in the woods and around water. And I can tell you from firsthand knowledge, it might look like a nice river. But it's the porta potty for the coyotes. It's it's where the wolves and they say all raccoons are are so nice because they wash everything. They don't have any salivary glands. They do that because they don't have any water in their mouth. They're washing all that. But but then when they get done, they leave a little. It's like these geese that leave us a little present here all this time around here. Okay. And what you have to understand is that when Moses stretched out that tree. Over the river, the Bible said it was turned to blood. (laughs) Everything, everything that was in that river died when the blood came. And when you go into the waters of baptism, oh, Jesus, it was, it's just dirty water. But when the name is called out over you. The water becomes something now that it never was. Would you be free from your burden of sin? There's power in the blood. Power in the blood. Would you a victory over evil wind? There's power in the blood. Power in the blood. Think of that. It's the word says we live our life as a tale that's told. One verse in Malachi talks about a book of remembrance. A book of remembrance. Let me tell you about you and me. Everything that we've ever done is recorded in a book. Every thought, every action, chronologically, by date, by time, it's my book. I don't ever want you reading my book. Because there's stuff in my book I don't want you to ever know. There's stuff that I've done that I'm not proud of. There's stuff that I'm said that I'm ashamed of. There's things that I've thought and I'm, I'm, I'm embarrassed when I think about things that I've thought. Did you ever look at something you shouldn't look at? I did. It's in my book. But let me tell you what, there's another book. It's called the Lamb's Book of Life. And if you can get your name in that book, (laughs) you see, the other book is everything that I did while I was alive. But the Lamb's Book of Life is everything that he did while he was alive. And if I get my name in his book, it doesn't matter what I did. All that matters is what did he do. I'm finishing. All of a sudden, you're Noah. See, I, I, I gave my whole life to be a good preacher. 
My wife will tell you this. Anybody that knows me, I read three things every week. I always read the Bible. I always read something about the Bible. And I always read a third source, usually biographies or histories. Because when I speak to you, I want to be interesting. I want to keep your attention. I don't want you to go, oh, here he goes again. I heard that 15. No, I don't, I don't want to do that. I don't want to get up here and go, ooh, I feel the Holy Ghost. And then just beat, the, beat you to death because you ain't worshiping. We had a man here preach one time and he got so mad because the pe- people weren't worshiping. And I finally had to go up and talk to him. I said, give us something to worship about and we'll worship. But I'm not going to let you tell me, give me a J, an E, an S, a U, and an S, and a few pom-poms and expect us to go nuts. You'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. All right? Give us some truth. Give us some word. Give us something that we can put in our spirit. Don't just get up there and try to rasp up the crowd. That's not me. I'm not ever going to get up here and just go, woo-hoo-hoo, I feel the Holy Ghost, and then get out of preaching. But I'll still cash my check on Monday. That's easy living. I'm the pastor. If I'm in town, I'm usually going to preach. Okay? I've given my life to this. There's a lot of people tell me I'm really good at it. But if I'm Noah and I realize there's a flood coming and this whole city is going to be destroyed. Let me tell you what the Bible says. Noah was not an interesting preacher. He was not. He he was a preacher of righteousness. He was a preacher of righteousness. Look at the story of Abraham. Abraham has got his family in Sodom and the Lord's angel comes and said, we're going to destroy Sodom. And this is what Abraham said. Would you spare it if I could find 50 educated people? Would you spare it if I could find 50 really wealthy people? Would you, would you spare it if I could find 50 really attractive people and very, very, very talented This is what he said, Lord, would you spare it if I could find 50 righteous people? And he said, yes, sir. I'll spare it for 50. And then Abraham went further and knocked five off. How about 45? How about 40? Okay. And then he gets real aggressive. How about 30? Lord, would you spare it for 30? Yes, I will. Would you spare it for 20? Yes, I will. Would you spare it for 10? Okay, I'll spare those cities if you can find me 10 righteous people. Because the deal's done, see. Abraham already knows 10 people. It's not in the Bible, but Jewish rabbis have always taught that Lot had four daughters. Two of them were engaged, betrothed, and two of them were married. So in Abraham's mind, he's got Lot and his wife, that's two. He's got two daughters and their fiancés. That's four more. Now we got six. He's got two married daughters with son-in-laws. That's ten. Abraham's doing the math. He's already got ten. The problem is they're not righteous. See, if you, if you knew there was a flood coming, and I promise you, there's a flood coming. I promise you there is a storm coming. I, I, I heard Donald Trump said, if I was president, I could solve that thing in Ukraine in 24 hours. And last week at the United Nations, President Zelensky said, Mr. Trump, would you please come and try and fix this thing? And I, I don't care what your position is. I'm telling you, Donald Trump can't fix it in 24 hours. Because every president I can ever think of said, we're going to have peace. We're going to have peace. We're going to have peace. And they never make the connection. Because it says, listen, by it. First, he's got to be king of righteousness. 
And then he's going to be king of peace. And the problem is people want the peace, but they don't want anything to do with the righteousness. And we got to get it in order. It talks about the order of Melchizedek. There's an order to this thing, ladies and gentlemen. You, 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 you want peace in your life? This, remember what Isaiah said? He said that he's prince of peace and of his government and peace, there shall be no end. This is what Isaiah is trying to say to you. See, there's only one more chair for a prince to occupy. He's, he's got to be king. So Isaiah calls the Lord Prince of Peace. But if you go all the way back to the beginning, that's not what Melchizedek was. It said he was first king of righteousness and then king of peace. If we will put the Lord on the throne and move him from being the prince to the king, there, there'll be righteousness in our life and it always evolves into peace. If you want peace in your life, you gotta have righteousness first. For the kingdom of heaven is not meat and drink, but it's righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. The Bible said, seek the kingdom and his righteousness. What are you saying, Pastor Hoffman? I'm saying, ladies and gentlemen, don't just hear me, feel me. There's a storm coming. And we can fix it. <laughs> you know what we got to do? Just do what's right. Just do what's right. You want peace in your life? It's not going to happen unless you start doing what's right. Let me explain to you. You're not going to have peace in your life if you don't come to church. I don't care who you are. You know, okay, buy, when the doors are open, be here. Okay? That's just right, all right? And when you're here, don't just set your carcass down on one of these green benches and, and, and give me an, an imitation of a mannequin. Be involved. Lift your hands. Lift your head. Lift your voice. Lift your <laughs> Oh, God. Oh, God. Do your tithing. Return your tithing unto the Lord. Come to prayer. Come to prayer. Come on. You don't have to be a nuclear brain surgeon. You think you're going to do this without the presence of God? Did you hear what John said? That was so powerful what he said. He said, if you want the power, you got to get the presence. And you ain't going to have the presence without the praise. Start praising God and then you'll get into his presence. Get in his presence. Then you have access to the power. But people want the power of God without the display. Without any effort. You weren't here, but right there in the first service is a precious woman that calls this church home. She's got cancer all through her body. She's now refused radiation and said, we're going to trust God. Last week, she coughed and broke five of her ribs. I don't know if you've ever had a broken rib, but I have. And I'm telling you, that's one painful, painful, painful thing. But that precious woman is sitting right there in the first service this morning with her hands laced. Everybody else would say, I'm sorry, Pastor, I broke five ribs. I really need to stay home until this spins up, but not her, because she realizes my only hope is the presence. I got to get in the presence because if I can get in the presence of God, I believe God could heal me. I believe God, I could have a display of the power of God in my life. This city's in trouble. My nation's in trouble. This world's in trouble. I'm looking for a church that'll just do what's right. Stand. 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 Get the interpretation. Get the understanding. Forget the sacrifice. How about let's just do what's right? 
How about let's just do what's right? And if we'll do what's right, oh God, is your marriage in trouble? Is your family in trouble? I never know what's in this room when I'm preaching right now. I don't have any idea what's watching me from God knows where in it. Listen to me. Don't just hear me. Feel me right now. You don't have to be brilliant to figure this out. First, he's got to be king, not a prince. And he can't just be any king. He's got to be a king of righteousness. Because if you make him king and start doing what's right, then he'll be king of peace. But the peace follows the righteousness, not vice versa. And everybody wants an answer and everybody wants peace and everybody wants their solution. How about we just learn to do before God what's proper? Come with me around this altar. Come with me around this altar. Jesus, you you have no idea what's in this room right now. I have no idea. I wish I could read you some of the texts that I've got recently from people that, that watched this program or Zoom, whatever, you know, live stream, whatever you call it. Oh, Jesus. Father. Father, I don't, I don't know what's in this room. You do. You do. I don't know what's remotely viewing us, this thing, right? I, I, I don't know, but you do. But I'm asking you, Lord, you said you sent your word and healed them. Father, I don't need Facebook. I, 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 I don't need Twitter. I, I, I don't need Instagram. I don't need Spotify. What we need is the miraculous. And I believe, Lord, that if we'll learn to perfect our praise, we will enter into your presence. And in the presence, there's power. And there are things that can happen that defy, that defy the odds. Jesus, my world's headed for a storm. And instead of me preaching pretty sermons, I'm going to replicate Noah and I'm going to try and preach what's right. I'm going to try and preach what's right. I'm going to be like Abraham. I'm going to do my very best to be something righteous to stay the judgment that I think is headed our way. Put your hand on someone by you right now. Let's pray for our brother and sister right now around the Lord Jesus, this is my brother and my sister right now. First, first, we're going to do what's right. First, we're going to make you king. You're in charge. You hear me? You're in charge, Lord. You're not the vice president. You're not the assistant pastor. You're not the deputy sheriff. You're the judge of the whole earth. You're the king of all kings, the Lord of all lords. We are putting you on the throne of our lives. We king you today. We crown you as king in this room here right now. And we make a covenant with you around this altar. We're going to do what's right. Keep speaking to me, Lord. Please don't get so frustrated that you quit talking to me. When I do something that's not right, I want you to talk to me. When I think about something that's not proper, I want you to talk to me. I want you to be king of righteousness in my life because I, 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 
never going to have any peace if I don't understand you have to be king. But you're only going to be king if I start doing what's right. Jesus, help me to understand this. What's first? What matters? What's priority? Oh, God, speak to the people in this room right now. There's things they need to change the way they treat their wives, how they treat their husbands, how they respect their parents, their respect for the house of God. Oh, Lord, there are people that treat this church like a restaurant. They show up every now and then hoping they're going to get a good meal. I'm asking you, God, to give us a revelation of how powerful and how important it is to be here and gathered together. One puts a thousand to flight. Two puts ten thousand. Three does a hundred thousand. Four does a million. I think I don't matter, but there are nine thousand things that'll never happen in the church if I don't show up. So I'm going to come and I'm going to sit here and I'm going to worship and I'm going to hear the word and I'm going to respond to the word. And when I leave this place, God, my service has not ended, but rather just begun. And I'm going to be a witness and I'm going to be a light and I'm going to be an example in this community. Because if somebody don't start preaching righteousness, the flood's coming. It's going to be a really bad day. So God, gentlemen I really do try I, I really do try to bring you something different every week but probably what we ought to do for a while is just preach about righteousness I think we're educated far beyond our level of involvement oh pastor give me another revelation oh that was magnificent give me something I... there's something in business called prolonged conduct lag teach it and people don't get it they teach again and people don't get it there's this conduct lag the time between something being taught and something actually being put into practice I see that in church let's face it ladies and gentlemen we don't need any more revelation we're, we're educated far beyond their level of involvement let's just do what we already know in this room.